going to turn there. And uh, we've been working our way through the first book of the Psalter this year. I'm actually going to take a break from that series in um, the month of July. And um, what we've realized as a session, and what you probably realized if um, in the recent future, the recent past, you've been through one of our new members' classes, um, we talk a lot about the vision of our church um, and a lot about the expectations moving forward. Um, and that's something that I haven't visited in a while in sermons. And so what I want to talk about over the next month and the month of July um, is what the church is and what we see ourselves as a church moving forward and how we think God has equipped us to engage with Culpeper. And so it's a little bit of a vision, a little bit of ecclesiology, and also how you best can serve here at Christ Covenant where you are. Um, one of the things that I say in the new members class um, in our third, which is all about expectations, is that everyone has a vision in their minds for what this church is going to be. Right now, if I say, what's it going to look like in a year, all of you have a vision, including me, and none of us are right. Um, because the Lord does what the Lord does when he plants and grows a church. And so a part of growing in a church is constantly asking the question, and it's a big job of leadership, is what is God doing here? What do we see the Bible teaches? What are the ways that our church is being equipped? And what are the ways we see our church has to engage with culture and teaching and preaching on that? And so um, I wanted to take a, an opportunity over the next few weeks to do what I do a lot in new members class, but widely to the whole um, congregation and, um, and talk about um, the vision for our church, especially as we continue to grow and look for opportunities um, to do church planning. And so that's coming up. So you can think about that in the month, um, month of July coming. But for now, we are in Psalm 19. And if you remember back, we showed an introductory video when we started our series on the Psalms. And it went through and showed how each book of the Psalms was not, or, not only organized by books, we think, to pattern the first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Um, but, so there's five books of Psalms as well to pattern that. But there's also logic. There's also order and the way each individual book is put together. And so when you look at book one of the Psalms, the first 41 Psalms, um, right there, approximately in the middle, is Psalm 19. <laughs> and Psalm 19 serves as the middle of the first book, summarizing what the first book of the Psalms is about, which is about the Word of God. And so this morning we're going to look at the Word of God and to prime your pumps for what to expect. I want to give you maybe a question to consider, a hypothetical question. I want you to consider, I hope you have some people, I hope you have um, both Christians and non-Christian friends, and if you consider 10 of your Christian and non-Christian friends, people who would be broadly considered by our society to be spiritual people, I wonder if you took a poll of them, a short interview, and asked all 10 of them, how do you learn about God? How does God reveal himself to you? How does, how does God speak to you? And then pull together your, your interview data, your polling, from your 10 spiritual friends. I wonder what range you would have in the midst of that, of the ways that people say they think that they engage with God. I think already in your minds you would realize there probably would not be a consensus. And that at least today in our culture, for people who consider themselves spiritual people, people in some way who engage with the spiritual world or engage with what they think is God, they understand some way that that God, that deity, that spiritual world reveals itself to them. And so the question that comes to Christians is, are there multiple ways to engage with the spiritual world? 
Is it, as some people assert, people who are not Christians, that every way leads to God and that we have something to learn about God from Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Islam and other different, um, different religions? Or is God very specific in the way that he reveals himself? And if God is specific in the way that he reveals himself, how does God reveal himself? And even more practically for you, if I were to say, I want you this week to hear from God to study God and to know God, what would you do? If I told you right now, I want a seven-day plan for you to hear from God and know God as he truly is, as he's revealed himself, what would be involved in your plan? So right now, maybe your gears are turning and you know exactly what you do and maybe it's exactly what Psalm 19 says and what the Bible teaches or maybe, there's some, maybe that's brought up some questions in your mind as to I don't quite know what I would do and I don't quite know how God has revealed himself. Well, I can tell you from Psalm 19 and as we'll look at other passages that speak into this issue that God has very clearly revealed himself in both creation and in his word. And we're going to look at that this morning from Psalm 19, so hopefully you can answer not only for yourself, but also for your unbelieving friends. If they were to ask, hey, I want to know more about God, what what should I do? How can someone know God truly as he is? It's really one of the biggest questions that anyone can ask. How can I know God? How can I I know who he is and be in a right um, relationship with him? And so I'm actually going to teach you a little bit of theological language this morning. Um, Sometimes I don't. Um, because it's stuff that you won't necessarily use day to day, but I think this morning is going to be helpful. And so if you're a note taker and you're thinking about it this morning, I'm going to teach you two words, um, two actually, I guess four words, two different concepts um, about the way God reveals himself. God reveals himself in general revelation and also in special revelation. General and special, not complicated words, not like hypostatic union or perichoresis or any of those things, just general and special. And so if you're tagging in your head how we're going to think about the ways that God reveals himself, general and special, and you're going to see that in Psalm 19. And so I think with that, I've given you enough introduction that you're going to see where David is going in Psalm 19 and um, where some other authors of the New Testament are going when they reflect on the same issue as we consider this this morning. And so, um, like I said, if you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 19, it'll also be in... um, the screen um, behind you as we consider it this morning. This is the word of our God to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That was general revelation, now special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Why don't we pray before we consider it. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, written and incarnate, we pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would teach us We pray, Lord, what the end of Psalm 19 says, Lord, that as we consider now that you would let the words of my mouth as as I preach and the meditation of our hearts as we consider it, that they would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, so I've, I've already revealed where we're going this morning, and we're going to start simply with this, that God reveals himself clearly in creation. And that might be something that we would need to labor on more if we lived in a different place, but it's difficult to live in a place like Culpeper and not understand that. It's easy as you go along and you go by Mosby Market, and if you're going north, then look out west and see the, the Appalachians out there and even notice old Rag standing there on his own and not see those mountain ranges and we're able to consider there, there must be a God who made that. Or as I was back in my hometown a few weeks ago and looked out over the ocean on some days smooth and calm with the sun coming up, on other days tempestuous as a storm worked its way out and not look at the sea in all of its immensity and not say, certainly there is a God. You see, part of what God did when he made all things was to reveal part of who he is. And so it's not just that we would put our hands in our gardens or take vacations in beautiful places or live in beautiful counties like this in areas of Virginia and say, isn't that nice? I love going on a stroll. I love walking. What a beautiful sunrise. But that we would look at it and that we would allow our hearts to be carried to God as deity and say, certainly you exist. And that creation itself would be a means of worship. And you see that here in Psalm 19 in the first half where it says, personifying anthropomorphizing aspects of nature and giving them the job of preaching God's glory. We might in our silence listen for a moment and hear old rags saying there is a God. Or with the lapping of the waves on the beach one after another, hear them say there is a God and a creator. As the sun came up this morning, and it says, like an eager bridegroom, um, I I have the privilege when I do um, weddings of walking out with the bridegroom. You're in the little back room, little green room, and they're all nervous, and your job's to kind of like calm them down and make sure he's not going to faint. And then there's the march out, and you you march out. Pastor usually leads just so he doesn't get lost along the way, make sure he gets there. But um, if you're watching, the the two best things about a wedding is um, the, the best is to watch the bride. And so when the bride comes down, but, but the, the second best is to watch the groom when he walks down and he first puts eyes on his bride. And here David, even borrowing from Hebraic wedding traditions, talks about the bridegroom leaving his chamber for um, the wedding. And it's like the sun each day, excited about God and who God is, gloriously, wonderfully, each day, excited to be the sun excited to to march again to meet its God and creator. Paul will reflect on this in 
Romans 1. And I'll turn there and let Paul tell us about this and add a little bit more than David knew to add when David was talking about that. And so if we look in Romans, I'll read to you, you don't have to turn there unless um, you want to. Romans 1 verse 20, um, Paul will say this, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so Paul is saying there's some specific things that God generally reveals, general revelation, in the things that he's created. His eternal power and his divine attributes. So when you look at the mountains or you hear a thunderstorm and you see its great power, you have to think there must be a God who is more powerful than that who exists, much less who is able to create all things and make all things hold together. If you look at the order of creation, if you consider all of the things that have to happen in your body, in every single one of your cells right now, for simply for you to stay alive for the rest of this sermon, and you consider the amount of order and complexity and beauty and artistry that it takes simply for us to stay alive, we must say that there must be a God with wonderful attributes of beauty and order and complexity and a love for life and light. But that's not all that creation says. It's not just there is a God, but it also leaves everyone without excuse. And so Paul will go on in verse 21, and he'll say this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I read on, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so we'll get to how creation is good news, but right now Paul says that men and women, boys and girls, fallen in sin with their minds and affections naturally bent towards sin and darkened in sin, when they come into contact with old rag and the beach and the sunrise, they do not come and say, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has redeemed me through the blood of Jesus, you are my God Almighty, I serve and follow you. That they cannot know that information about him, that they can know that he exists, that he is powerful, that he's complex, that he's a God of beauty, he's a God of majesty and of awe, but that they take that knowledge and instead of worshiping the creator, they instead worship creation. And now what you're thinking right now is, you know, Joe, it's, you know, you're, you're not a Christian this morning. You know, I'm, I, I don't worship totem poles. I, I don't believe in a, a God of the earth and a God of the waves. I, I don't believe in those kinds of things. I don't worship creation. Some have. You can debate as we finish the sermon whether that is actually more complex or less complex than what we currently do. But for folks who do not know Christ and have given themselves to money and power, have they not made money and power their God? For folks who do not know Christ and have instead thought, sought after the approval of men, have they not made the approval of men their God? 
for people in frustration, maybe those things who instead have given themselves to addiction and find themselves in addiction, have they not began by worshiping hops and something that our, our creation makes and God intended for good and instead found them enslaved to the thing that they worshiped in addiction? Can we not see that what Paul says is absolutely true? Even other religions, and so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10 that what pagans worship behind pagan worship, and by pagan worship I mean anything other than Christianity, is actually the demonic. So if you look at things like how did Joseph Smith find what he did? How did he create Mormonism? How did Muhammad decide that Islam was a religion? If you study those stories, you find a strong work of dark spiritual forces. I believe that both of them came into, fa- came into contact with very real demonic forces that helped establish false religion. Satan loves every religion except Christianity. He's perfectly happy for you to be enslaved and be a very religious and spiritual person as long as it isn't the one true God. Because demons are also created by God. And so we see this work out, that general revelation in the hands of fallen people is used to deny the real God and instead worship false gods. So even atheism and agnosticism, no matter how sincerely held, is simply a denial of basic creation logic. It is self-deceit. And one of the reasons that we love that there's a church here in Culpeper is to show people what creation is pointing them to. And so, as I said, Paul would help us in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching not to Jews, but to those who are not Jews on Mars Hill. He actually makes the argument, why did God create all these things? Well, he created these things so that when you look at them and says there must be a God, that it would be be pricked in your conscience to pursue who that God is. And Paul proclaims to them, the God who created all these things is the one who raised Jesus from the dead in whom there is forgiveness of sin and right relationship only. And so creation is very evangelistic. Old rag wants you to meet Jesus. The ocean wants you to be saved. The sunrise wants you to confess your sins and follow the same God that it follows each day. But so many people stop with creation and end there. I can't tell you as I was... You did some ministry in Virginia Beach and Charlottesville and Mississippi and back up in this area and beautiful locations. How many people tell me, well, my church is on the boat on Sunday morning or my church is in the woods with a hunting rifle? Especially men seem prone to this. That I go out and I, 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 this word so many times, commune with nature and that's how I engage with God. Not to say that is 100% unable to show you the one true God or save your soul. If that is the main way that you think God reveals himself to you, there is no way that you can know the one true God. If that is the main way that you think that God reveals himself to you. And so you must hear the the waves and the ocean and all these things point you to something more than that. And so we see in the second half of the psalm, did you notice the transition in, um, in Psalm 19, right about verse 7? Not only a transition that there's probably a gap in your Bible, which wasn't there in, um, in, in the Hebrew, but a transition in the way 
David talks about the second form of revelation. And so then he goes on to talk about special revelation. And by special, not revealed to everyone at the same time, equally accessible to everyone. Nature is equally accessible to all human beings. So no human being is without excuse to believe that there is a God and that it must seek him, follow him, and know him. But special revelation is revealed to his word in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. And what you probably noticed is that general revelation is declaratory. The mountains declare. The sky above declares. The sun declares there is a God. We get to the second part. He's talking about the word of God, special revelation. It's transformative. Do you see the difference? Listen to what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You might leave the mountains refreshed, but God has not left spiritual refreshment in creation. You can only get it through the word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What God has done in this word is he's shown that it is his word and the revelation of himself in his word that brings life and health and transformation and regeneration and refreshment and revival. And so if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, if you want to know your sins are forgiven, you can't go into the woods. You have to go to God's word to know that. It's becoming increasingly necessary for us to come back to this word and to understand this. It would seem that in an age like ours with the Googleification of our society, that true knowledge would be easier to grasp. But I wonder if that's what you're really finding. People who deal in the communication realm talk about the signal and the noise. Give you an illustration. If you remember radios, I'm not talking about like, you know, iHeartRadio or radio on Spotify, but like FM, much less AM radios. Kids, you might like be fooling around with your parents' car and this strange thing might come on, the stations on it. Back in the day, there was this fuzz and static noise. You had to find the signal in the midst of it by tuning in. And even in the old days, before digital radios, there were actually knobs. Now, maybe you can remember when you would turn the knob and you'd be trying to find a station that was far off and you'd try and get it exact and you'd go over and just with the finest finger precision trying to find the signal in the midst of all of the static and noise to hear. Our assumption is that the internet is making knowledge like Pandora or Spotify or iTunes or Beats or whatever radio station you live that's clear, so easy to find. What, it just brings my own music to me and my own catered playlist. But actually what we're finding is that it's more and more difficult to find true truth. I tried to do research on this this morning. I'm sure some of you techie people can tell me more, but I think it was 2008, the study that I was looking at said that there were 600 websites being created per day. 2008, that was a while ago in tech terms. The propagation of just words and data is immense. 
how will you find what's truly true in the midst of that? Somebody wants to know what is true truth. I mean, I'm not talking about like spiritual stuff, but the best way to change your tire. How to, how to prevent mildew rot on your squash plants. How to do your job or your vocation. How to pick the right diet for your family. How many options do you have? Much less we're beginning to find that everybody's biased. Do you remember the groundbreaking work that Fox News did and news reporting? They're one of the first news agencies to admit that they were balanced, that, that they were unbiased. They didn't say we're bringing the truth. They say we're bringing it fair and balanced. Whether or not it is, you can be of your own determination whether that's true. But that was unheard of for a news organization to say they were fair and balanced. We don't want fair and balanced. There's no balance. There is truth and not truth. But they realized that all of the news outlets were biased, and maybe you realize the same. Even now, as I said, mentioning the Googleification, Google itself has changed. It used to be if you searched for how to change a tire and I searched for how to change a tire, we would get the same results. But now they track you and they track me and they figure out what we like and what we don't like and they now give specialized results just for you based on the question that you ask and what their ad supporting partners want you to see. So again, in an age where we have access to so much data, is there a way for us to engage with a medium, a media that is all signal and no noise, that is not biased at all. Well, there always has only been one, and that's the Word of God. In an age where we have access to every encyclopedic trivia answer that you could want to have, we have even more need of this book. To come to this book and to know this book and to know what God says about our world and about himself. This is the only true way that we can understand our world and God. John Calvin said that there are two glasses. He called them spectacles in the Christian life. He said you need the Holy Spirit to see the word of God rightly. And you need the word of God through which to see the world rightly, including God and the only way to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we look in Psalm 19 and we see it has never been more applicable for the people of God to come to the word of God and to know the word of God. I don't even mean all the blogs that you read and all the different things that you go and all the different parachurch ministries that you go to. I'm not even talking about posts or data about biblical items. I mean actually coming to the Bible, the Word of God, the inerrant, true Word of God, and being a people of this Word. This is the only place where God speaks inerrantly about Himself and the way to be saved through Christ. There's never been more need for this book. Now, my, my third point. Break things up. I told you it was just general revelation and special revelation. Well, I'm changing on you because to give you an illustration, if I force someone to read these words, if I walk down Davis Street and unknowingly stand in front of someone and, and, and make the book in front of them, that they have to see the words on this page, I can't save them with it. 
These aren't magic spells. Because they see the words in order or read it exhaustively does not mean someone's saved. And so I promise you, there are Jews who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus who have an exhaustive knowledge of this book. Just south of us at University of Virginia, there are New Testament professors who have a greater knowledge of the historical, grammatical ins and outs of the New Testament than I do, who don't think any lick of it is true. Simply knowing this book will not save you. So what can? It's realizing that this book in full points to not just here, the written word, but the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's general revelation and creation that drives you to the book. There's in the book special revelation that drives you to, we might say special revelation too, if you're taking notes, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, who all of this book is about. So if I start in John 1, John does this very specifically. John's gospel is the most theologically developed. And when he started writing his gospel, you can imagine um, the kind of things that um, you might be wondering how to start your gospel. If you were to write a gospel about Jesus, introduction's the hardest part. I always write the introduction um, last whenever I have to do it in my writing because it's the hardest thing um, to write. John wondering, how do I start my gospel? How do I talk about Jesus? What can I start with? And so John starts with this. In the beginning, you might recognize that from Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on, and you actually don't realize who the Word is until verse 18. He kind of keeps you in suspense. You know, because you've read it, that the Word is the Lord Jesus. And so what John says is that the Word incarnate, God's speaking, regenerating, creative power, is the Lord Jesus Christ, that this whole book is about him. And if you've been here for any more than um, one sermon, you know that that's true. And what we believe, that when Jesus in Matthew 5 was challenged by the Pharisees, and they were saying, you're disregarding the Word of God, he said, oh no, I'm not abolishing it, I'm fulfilling it. This whole book in full is about me. All of the law, all of the stories, all of the revelation is about who I am so that Jesus is the revelation of the one true God. In him is grace and truth. By him we've come to know God truly. You could know him in the Old Testament, but to know him clearly and truly it is the New Testament. So that even our access to knowing God as Trinity is through knowing Jesus as Christ. He's the one who started saying, there's the Father and there's the Holy Spirit. Not that the Trinity came into existence when Jesus was born. It always had been. But the clarity that came through the ministry of Jesus revealed God truly as he is and how we are to be saved in him. That Jesus has been actively obedient on our behalf to this word. That all of God's requirements for salvation were met in Christ and then he was passively obedient to the plan of God for the redemption of his people when he went to the cross and died for our sins so that in Christ we might know God and be reconciled to him not from a righteousness of our own, but by faith in Jesus as the culmination of creation and the culmination of the Bible. So that if anyone is going to know God truly, they must know him through the Bible. Paul says in Romans 10, it's what the Jews missed. 
said they have a zeal for the law, but they did not realize all of it culminated in Christ, and so they missed all of it. And so if we circle back around and ask our question, how does God reveal himself? We're meant to go both ways, but all the way. So we're supposed to see creation in old rag in the ocean and say, God is great, I want to know him more. And go to his word and say, this word is awesome. What does it say? That the word in full points to Christ. How can I know God through Christ and find redemption in him? And after knowing redemption in Jesus, I might go back to the word and study Christ in the scriptures and go back to the park this afternoon and say, praise God for Yalmeadow Park. Being there with a frisbee in your hand and grass in your feet and pizza in your mouth, knowing that it isn't just, this is nice stuff and a nice afternoon, but the Lord Jesus, Redeemer of all things, created this for my enjoyment because he loves me. And he gave this for me that I might be thankful to him and thank him for these things. And so special revelations meant to drive you to general revelation and back to special revelation, and there at the middle is this book. And I've never been more convinced as a Christian and a pastor that's what's needed for our culture and our church is to be about this book. To study it in full, to know it in depth, to find Christ on every page, to implement it in our lives. As our culture becomes more and more dark and the data becomes more and more and the noise becomes noisier, being able to say we have the very word of God about Christ. And as we walk in his ways, we're not left to wonder what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to order our lives or what's going to happen. Jesus wins. His ways are clearly taught. We want to walk in his ways and know his grace and mercy and the forgiveness that he gives us and the way he's taught us to order our lives and families and businesses. And so I long for us as a church to continue to be a church that is molded and formed by this book. So I wonder what that looks like for you, being about this book. Or inviting others and sharing with others that they might look on a sunset and you might look over and say, hey, you know, I know the guy that made that. I'd like to introduce you to him. Oh, you, you you know the Bible confusing to you? Well, do you know the key? Do you know it's all about Jesus? How would you like to come to my church and find out more about the Jesus that unlocks the entirety of the Bible? That we would be an evangelistic, missional Bible-loving, Bible-shaped, God-loving people because we know how God reveals himself and we've come to know the one true God through his words that leads us to know Christ and place our faith in him for forgiveness of sins. Would God make it true? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, written and incarnate. Thank you, Lord, that all of us had stories that brought us to understand this word and our own need for a savior in Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there are any here this morning who are there and realize their need for Christ for the first time, that they might repent of their sins and believe in Christ as this word teaches them, that they might walk in the newness of life that this book describes and that you would take our congregation, Lord, and grow our love for this book as we walk hand in hand towards new heavens and new earth together as a faith family. We love you, Lord God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we stand and respond in song.